listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at CanadianStreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. Hey there, welcome to Canadian Streetlight Podcast. This is Aaron Hale here. And I had just recently listened to another Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon and was very encouraged uh, just in light of some circumstances in my own life in facing um, just struggles in ministry, seeking to proclaim the Word of God and just getting uh, struggle and conflict in the midst of that. And sometimes it can be disorientating. And you may stop and wonder, well, what am I doing wrong? I thought I was to be advancing the kingdom and proclaiming good news to the lost. And yet it seems at times, instead of the fruit of repentance and growth, we sometimes face struggle and conflict. And, and we may feel like something is wrong when we encounter that kind of uh, response. And I was just very encouraged by this message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and the reminder that the gospel has always been offensive, that it has always put the the people who proclaim it uh, in conflict, and yet in the midst of that, God works and God's power and wisdom is displayed. And so just wanted to share this. Um, I know many of you out there enjoy uh, the good doctor, and I uh, pray you're blessed by this as I was. The first 12 verses in the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And here I want to try to show you how the very situation in which we ourselves are involved is dealt with. And we are told plainly and exactly what we are confronting and how we are to confront it. Now then, what is the teaching here? Well, the first thing that we find is something that I, at any rate, always feel is most comforting. And it is that we are not facing any new situation. So many Christian people are discouraged and disheartened because of the difficulties of the times in which we find ourselves, and they seem to think that this is something new, something that has never happened before. And in the same way many who are opposed to the church and her message, they believe, likewise, that they are doing something which is quite new. But if we have nothing but this one incident that we are now going to examine, we can give the lie direct to any such teaching. This is not the first time that the gospel has been fighting for its life. The simple fact is that the gospel of our Lord has had to fight for its existence from the very beginning. We are living in a world that actually crucified the Lord himself and rejected his message. But as we are reminded here, it not only happened to him, it happened to his servants, the apostles, the first preachers, the men whom he sent out and commissioned and whom he filled with the Holy Spirit in order to propagate his great truth. Immediately, they're in trouble. Here are Peter and John on trial before the great court of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And they're having to fight for their faith and for the whole persistence of the Christian church. 
So you see, there's nothing new about this situation. This idea that the gospel is being attacked and discredited and rejected because of modern knowledge and modern science and all the rest of it is just, of course, completely and entirely false. This gospel has been objected to, and as I say, rejected from the very beginning. Not only that, as you read the history of the Christian church throughout the centuries, you find that constantly there have been grievous persecutions and powers within the church and outside have been set together against the true faith and the true preaching of the faith, and God's servants have been hounded and sometimes even killed and put to death. I could tell you the long story of the, those people who suffered during the Middle Ages, the Protestant martyrs, the Puritans, the Covenanters in Scotland, men who had to suffer here in this province of yours and in other parts of the world throughout the running centuries. There is nothing new, therefore, about this situation in which we find ourselves. So we mustn't be discouraged by that. But I want to show you further that the opposition to the gospel really never changes at all. It always conforms to a pattern. The gospel doesn't change. The opposition to the gospel doesn't change either. Now, look at that as it's shown us in this paragraph that we are studying together. This might very well be a description of the modern situation by which you and I are confronted. Let's look for a moment at the people whom we are having to fight, the people who are opposed to the preaching of the gospel, exactly as they were opposed to it in the days of the apostles. And the first thing that strikes you is this. What a strange assortment and gathering of people they were. Now, I trust that you are sufficiently familiar with your scriptures still to realize what I mean by saying that. These are the people who are joining together to oppose the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, and then Annas the high, no, the elders and the scribes and the rulers, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest. Now that's a very interesting collection of people. And the interesting thing about them is this, that they were a gathering of people who really were very bitterly opposed to one another on most issues. These people who are described here, the captain of the troops, he was just the soldier. Then you've got the priests, they're the people who did the daily work in the temple, the routine work of the temple. But then you've got the scribes, the Pharisees and scribes, the experts on the law, those legalists who are always quarreling with our law. But then you've got people called Sadducees. Who are they? Well, they were a kind of priestly aristocracy. They were people who were just traditionalists. They were kind of nominal religious people. They were more politicians than anything else, and their real interest was in anything that served their cause. The Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, they didn't believe in a super-mundane world at all. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the miraculous. So, you see, they were entirely opposed in their views and in their teaching to the Pharisees and scribes. And then you have the others who are just political, political persons. 
and others who were just relatives, the hangers-on, who had worked themselves in summer. Now, this is the interesting thing, that these people who were so different from one another in so many respects join together and come together to make common cause against the apostles and against the preaching of the gospel. This is the most astounding thing, that men and women who disagree almost about everything find a strange agreement when they face our Lord and his gospel and his message. This is illustrated in many places in the scripture itself. We are told in connection with the last days of our Lord that Herod and Pontius Pilate became friends. They'd been at enmity before, but confronted with Jesus Christ, they become one and they make common cause. The Apostle Paul reminds us in his epistle to the Corinthians that the Jews and the Greeks became one in their opposition to the gospel. Now the Jews and the Greeks disagreed with one another fundamentally. The Jews regarded the Greeks as dogs. The Greeks, with all their cleverness and sophistication, regarded the Jews as ignoramuses, but they joined together in their opposition to the cross. Stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. You see, strange people come together in their opposition to this gospel. And that is precisely the position by which we are confronted at the present time. Look at the strange gathering of people who are opposed to this gospel. It's almost incredible, but nevertheless, it is a simple fact. You've got very clever people. You've got people like Bertrand Russell and Julian Huxley. Yes, but you know, for every two of them that you have, you could probably have two million people who know nothing about science and nothing about philosophy at all. Clever people and ignoramuses. They join together in their opposition to the gospel. Not only that, You've got people who are highly moral and concerned about morals. Yes, but their companions in opposing the gospel are the dissolute people and the flagrant sinners, the people who are organizing vice and indulging in it and enjoying it at the present time. But if you want to see the strangest gathering of all, you must look at what is called the ecumenical movement. And there, what have you got? Well, on the one hand, you've got uh, extreme sacerdotalists, and on the other end, you've got people who scarcely seem to believe anything at all, certainly nothing supernatural, certainly nothing which is sacramental. Men who just deny the scriptures and the very elements of the Christian faith. But they're all together in this same movement that is opposing the evangelical faith for which we stand and which we claim to be the apostolic message. In that movement, if you examine it from one end to the other, you will find them the strangest conglomeration of people, conceivable, differing from one another almost at every point until you come to the essence of the gospel and there they are welded together as the members of the Sanhedrin were in their opposition to these apostles. Indeed, I remember reading some two years ago an article by a well-known modern writer who is uh, an atheist and an unbeliever. Miss Margarita Lasky, and she said this in a very illuminating article. I cannot speak, she said, this is the exact quotation, I cannot speak for people like myself. Why? Well, she says, most unbelievers have little in common. 
There's no such thing, she says, as the typical unbeliever. We who are unbelievers, she says, have little in common. How true it is. Indeed, they have only one thing in common, and that is their opposition to the gospel. Their opposition to the message of salvation. There, these disparate groups suddenly are welded into one. Now, it's important that you and I should realize this, because it is very significant. Then the next thing that we must notice about these people is their characteristics. Because what they do have in common is always true of them. What are these things? Well, the first thing that we must notice is this, that it's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of understanding. It's not a matter of brain power. That's revealed here in an interesting word. We are told that the captain and the, high, and the priests came upon these people being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, when you read about people being grieved, it doesn't refer to their minds, their brains, their understanding. It refers to their prejudices. It refers to their feelings. It refers uh, to their hearts. And that was the trouble at that time. It is still the trouble today. People who reject the gospel do so not because of their great intellects or because of their knowledge. It is still because of their prejudice and because of the irrationality of which they are guilty, namely that they are governed by their feelings and by their desires rather than by an understanding of truth. And that leads me to the next point which is so obvious about them, which is this. That the thing that rarely annoyed these authorities about these apostles and their message was that it uh, touched and it hurt their pride. They were grieved, they were annoyed, they were moved and they were bitter. Why? Well, the answer is perfectly clear. They realized that their position and their authority was being threatened. These men were attracting great crowds, the crowds that formerly had listened to them. They're now listening to these men. And these authorities are very annoyed about these. They show their contempt of these simple preachers. We read here, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And if you look at that in the original, you'll find that it's put like this. You, you, by what power? Or by what name have you done this? The thing was an impertinence to them. Who are these men? They're just ordinary fishermen. And what right have they to be preaching at all? They haven't passed through the schools. They haven't had the diploma granted by these religious authorities. These are upstarts. They have no right. They, what are they doing? Well, they're questioning the validity of their orders. How can a man preach if he hasn't had episcopal ordination? How can a man preach if the Pope hasn't given him a blessing? You see, th this was an annoyance, the temerity of these men, this astonishing, this insolence, that these unlettered ignorant men should be preaching and teaching and working miracles, and they'd never passed through the regular channels, and they hadn't got this authoritative declaration that they were fit and proper people to preach. That was the trouble. And isn't it still the trouble? I was reading an article the other week, or an interview, rather, with, in the British Weekly, with an ex-moderator of the Church of Scotland, who is certainly not an evangelical, but even he was confessing his despair 
He said he remembered being at a conference with Anglicans 40 years ago, and he said the great trouble there was that the Anglicans were in great difficulty over the validity of Presbyterian orders. And he said he'd been at a conference the week before, and they were still tackling the same question. Has a Presbyterian minister a right to preach and to administer the sacraments? That's what they're arguing about, authority, you see. It's the old problem that confronted the members of the Sanhedrin as they looked at the preaching and the miracles of the apostles. Still precisely the same thing. Wasting time arguing about irrelevances while the world is in desperate need and is hurtling itself rapidly in the direction of a final destruction. But here it is. That was part of the trouble. And so, you see, they show their contempt of these men. This has been something which has happened so many times during the centuries. That's why the Roman Catholic hierarchy and power persecuted the Waldensians before the Reformation and the Brethren of the Common Life and people like that. That's why the Protestant Fathers were persecuted and driven to the stake. Who are these men? What right have they? That was the attitude. And it's been the attitude ever since, and it is the attitude right down until tonight. You see, their pride was touched. They have authority. These executives who manipulate and who control, and if everyone, anyone ventures to criticize or voice an objection, who are you, they say? What right have you to speak? We are indeed facing increasingly a kind of dictatorship such as that which was faced by the apostles at the very beginning. But another thing we notice about them is this, and it's still such a prominent characteristic that I must mention it. Peter, you notice, at the end of his address to them, refers to them as you builders. And that is, what ex that is exactly what they claim to be. They claim to be the people who knew. They were the builders. They were the men of knowledge and of understanding. They were the men who could give instruction. They were the men who really could establish and run the church and do what needed to be done and to save society. Builders the authorities. And you know, we are still confronted by the same thing. The people we are concerned about tonight are people who claim that they can even correct this book. They can tell you what's right in it and what's wrong in it. They know exactly, they say. They've got insight. Why? Why, they've got scholarship, they've got learning, they've got modern knowledge, and it's modern knowledge that really matters. So they sit in judgment on this. They can even reconstruct a Bible, and they're trying to do so. And they know exactly what the church is to be like, what she's to teach, and what she is to do. They are the builders. And they and they alone have the message that is needed by the world. They can not only tell us what the church should be like and what the church should do, they can tell governments, and they're always passing resolutions. They spend most of their time not in preaching the gospel, but in sending resolutions to governments. They're very wonderful people. They can tell the President of the United States what he ought to do and ought not to do, tell the Prime Minister of Great Britain, your Prime Minister. They can tell everybody what to do. They're builders. They're authorities on every subject, and they can make a perfect world. They're ready to do so. They've got the teaching, the knowledge, everything that is requisite. They are the builders. That's the position with which we are still confronted. You see, there is no change whatsoever. There's nothing new about this. The opposition to the gospel 
has precisely the same characteristics tonight as it had in the very first century, even in the days of our Lord himself here in this world. Now then, here's the vital question. What is it they object to? And the answer is that they are still objecting to the same things. What are they? Well, to the person of Jesus Christ, to his sacrificial death upon the cross, and to the literal fact of his physical resurrection. For that is what these men were preaching. But here in these two verses 11 and 12, Peter gives us a perfect summary of it. So this is what I want to put to you as briefly as I can. At one and the same time, I can show you the objection to the gospel and what you and I must assert and declare, not only over and against these objections, but assert them in order that men and women may be saved from hell and eternal destruction. What is it? Here it is. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. These are the things to which they object. What are they? First, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other. None of the name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the Savior. What do I mean? I mean this. The modern men and the modern men in what calls itself the Christian church in general has no objection whatsoever to preaching about Jesus as a great man as a good man, as the greatest religious teacher that the world has ever known. It has no objection to that whatsoever. It has no objection to him as one who died, because they interpret that as meaning the death of a pacifist, the death of one who, rather than fight for his beliefs and views, would prefer to be put to death, a pacifist, a believer in passive resistance. Now, the world has no objection to that whatsoever. It will praise him as the greatest man of all times, perhaps, as the incomparable teacher, the moral exemplar, anything you like. Yes, it'll lord him to the very skies. But when you tell them that he is the savior, they object. For what does this mean? Well, what it means, as Peter was showing at that point, is this. That Jesus Christ didn't come into this world simply to teach us, simply to give us an example how to live, or show us how to die. The teaching is that he came into the world in order to save us. He didn't come into the world in order to teach us how to save ourselves. He is the Savior. Now, Peter uses this expression, there is none other name under heaven given amongst men. And he's already explained what he means by that. Do you remember why these apostles were on trial? Well, it was because Peter and John 
going up to the temple one afternoon at the time of prayer, saw a poor fellow sitting paralyzed outside the beautiful gate of the temple. And after a bit of conversation, Peter and John fastened their eyes upon him, and Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man who had been born lame and was over 40 years of age sprang to his feet. His feet and his ankle bones received strength, and he went walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And they're asked, how did you do this? And they say, if it be, if it, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. The power of Christ. The power of the name of this risen Lord. Now Peter says this is true in a spiritual sense. Jesus Christ is the Savior in the sense that he has come into the world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He doesn't teach us how to save ourselves. He has saved us by what he himself has done for us. That's the thing to which they object that he is the Savior. But they object still more when I go on to the second point made by Peter, which was this, that not only is Jesus Christ the Savior, he is the only Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other. And then the further elaboration. For there is none other name under him given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Now some of the learned authorities on this matter say that this could be translated like this. There is no second name under him given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Now this is the point which is most criticized at the present time. This is the thing for which we are really fighting. Our chairman has already referred to it in terms of tolerance. What we are being told at the present time is this, and this is common teaching in what is called the Christian church, that Jesus is one of the great religious teachers of the ages. So this is the phrase that you find so commonly in books and articles, on the television and in the discussions and in what is called preaching. They have a long list of names of the great teachers of the ages. Who are they? Well, they start perhaps with Moses, and they'll go on to Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and then on and on you go, and generally end with Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Now that is the typical and characteristic list. You see what it means. Jesus. Oh, yes. He's one of a series, one of the great thinkers, one of the great teachers, one of the great religious teachers. But he's only one of a series. No, no, says Peter, he's not. He's alone. He's the only name. He doesn't belong to a series. Not only that, there is no second name. We not only claim that he is unique and that he stands alone, we say that he is a perfect saviour, that he is a complete saviour, that he has left nothing undone. What we assert is that he needs no help, no assistance, 
No substitute, no addition. What we assert is this, that Jesus Christ has done it all, and he did it all himself. When he had, as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it, when he had by himself dealt with our sins. You must never add any name to this name. It's the only name. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't need any assistance. He doesn't need the assistance of his mother. You mustn't add the name of the Virgin Mary to this name. It's to detract from his glory. If you say that she is co-redemptrix, or that she has to do something to help him, if you add the saints and the priests and the Pope, or anybody you like, you are derogating and retracting not only from his unique glory, but from the all-sufficiency, the finality, and the fullness of his completed salvation. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no second name. He's not only the Savior, he's the only Savior. He's the exclusive Savior. He's the absolute entire Savior. And he stands alone in the fullness of his unique glory. Now this is what Peter was saying. This is what you and I must say. That you don't add to him. Even his mother, I say. No church, no priesthood, no scholarship, nothing. He and he alone has done it all. And he has done it completely. But the real crux of this matter, of course, is reached at this point. Why does Peter say that he is alone and unique and exclusive? Why must we assert that there is no value in anybody or anything else? You know, we are living in an age when we are told that we mustn't be narrow. We mustn't send missionaries to other countries and say that the Confucianism is wrong or Buddhism is wrong or Hinduism or Mohammedanism is wrong and that everybody must believe in Jesus Christ. We are told this is wrong, that this is narrow, that it's really unchristian and that as Christians we ought to say, well, we've got our insight but so have these other great religions and therefore what we need is a congress of world religions and as you may know, to me, a very tragic thing happened in London uh, last uh, June on a Saturday night when there was a combined service, so-called in St. Martin's in the field, unfortunately attended by Her Majesty the Queen herself, in which representatives of all these so-called great world religions and a Christian minister, so-called, took part together in a joint service. All these insights together will help us to arrive at the ultimate truth. Now that's a blank denial of the very thing the apostles stood for. They were on trial because they denounced it and said that he and he alone exclusively is the Savior and that all these others cannot help us in this matter of salvation and reconciliation to God. Why? On what grounds do we say that? Now, this is a vital question. Are we right in being in this meeting tonight? Is this fellowship justifiable? Are we just a number of intolerant, narrow-minded people who ought to be swept off the face of the earth? Or are we absolutely right? Now, we must know this. Why do we say we are right? Why must we assert that he and he alone is the Savior? Well, the answer is plain for all who've got spiritual eyes to see it in the whole of the Bible. Let me just summarize the answers. I mustn't keep you. 
Why is he the only Savior? The first answer is because God is God. The real trouble in the Christian church today is that she doesn't believe in God. And some of them are even saying that. They're talking about the absolute or the ground of all being or the principle of love. They don't know the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself. What do we know about him? Well, this is what he has told us about himself. God is love, certainly. We wouldn't be here tonight if that were not the case. But let us also remember that God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. God is of such a pure countenance that he cannot even look upon sin. That's what he's told us about himself. Sin is intolerable to him. And he must punish it. He has said so. His nature demands it. God cannot live with it. God is the utter opposite to sin. And in his law, he has made it abundantly clear that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That is the truth about God. Then what is the truth about men? Is men essentially a good fellow? That's what we are told today. We are told we mustn't preach about sin. The modern world, the modern church, unfortunately, doesn't recognize sin. It thinks it can explain it away psychologically. I remember reading a man ridiculing that famous hymn of Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul. He took up the verse, Just and holy is thy name, I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin, I am Thou art full of truth and grace. What nonsense he said. Can you imagine a man, he said, applying for a job and going to his prospective employer and saying, vile and full of sin I am? I am all unrighteousness? Nonsense, he said. This has been the curse of mankind, this idea of sin, that man is evil and sinful and wrong and worthy of punishment. He ridiculed it. That's the popular teaching. That man is essentially good. But according to this teaching... Man is essentially bad. The human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? This is what the Bible says. There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Man has fallen from his original creation. He has rebelled against God. He has fallen into sin. And here he is, polluted, perverted, vile, a creature of lust and passion, dead in trespasses and sins, the slave of the devil, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Here he is. This is man. He is guilty before God. He is powerless in his fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. His very nature has become black and twisted and perverted. And he's face to face with death and the judgment of God beyond it. Here's the predicament. What is the problem confronting men? What does mankind need tonight? Do you and I just need a little more knowledge? A little more science? A little more education? A little more moral example? Is that what's needed? What is needed by the poor drug addict, the poor teddy boy, or whatever he's called at the present time, the slave to drink? The man who's the slave of lust and passion, jealousy, envy, malice and hatred. Do they just need a little help and a little more knowledge? My dear friends, 
The moment you realize the truth about the condition and the predicament of men, you begin to see the problem of salvation. How can men be saved? How can a man be just with God? How can a man pray to God? How can a man hope to die triumphantly and face God in the judgment and go on to the eternal glory? Here's the problem. What do I need? Well, I need knowledge about God. I need someone who can represent me to God. As Job put it, oh, that they were a daysman. Someone who'd come between us. Someone who could take my hand and his hand and bring us together. That's what I need. And then what do I do about my past sins? What do I do about my polluted nature? David saw it, didn't he? David, you remember, had committed first adultery and then murder to satisfy his lust. But when he came to his senses, what really worried him was this. Not so much what he'd done as the fact that he'd ever wanted to do it. So he cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's rotten. He says, I must be made anew. This is the need of men. How can it be met? No man can do it, for every man has already failed. Why doesn't God create another Adam? Well, the answer is that the first Adam was perfect, and he fell. And if God created another perfect Adam, he'd fall also. That isn't the solution. Man cannot save himself. Well, then you say, why not send some angelic or some divine being? The answer is that before we can be saved, we must have someone to represent us who is like ourselves. He must be a man also. And here is the essence of the problem. I, as a man, cannot save myself. No man can save himself. And yet, I must have a man to represent me. I must be saved by a man. Otherwise, it's not a true salvation. And you see, there's only one answer to the question. All the great men of the centuries have sinned. They've all fallen face to face with the power of the devil. Not one of them has defeated him. Man can't do it, and yet it must be man. And there's only one answer. There is only one solution. And it is this Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is truly man. Yes, but he's also the eternal Son of God. He's man. He's God. He can represent me because he's man. He has been made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He has taken upon him not the, the seed of angels, but the seed of Abraham, made as we are, took on him the form of a man, humbled himself, took on him the form of a servant. He's man, and as man he can be my representative. Yes, but that isn't enough. He's God, and the Godhead and the man who come together, and he is a sufficient savior. Why? Well... He has come from God, and he knows God. No man hath seen God at any time. Man by searching cannot find out God. All the philosophers had already failed before he came. Here is one who comes down from heaven, who has looked into the face of God from all eternity, and he declares him to us. He knows he is God, God the Son. So he gives me the knowledge that I stand in need of. But oh, he does everything. Here is the law of God demanding obedience from me. And unless I give it, I am condemned. He has obeyed it perfectly on my behalf. 
He satisfied every demand of the law. But what about my guilt? What about my past sins? If I bear the punishment, I die eternally. What can be done? God has provided the answer. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God the Father has taken our sins, has put them on him, and has punished them in him. But because he's God, he can take it. He died, but he also rose again, delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. And he has entered into heaven, presenting himself and his blood as a sacrifice and an offering for the sins of those who believe in him. You see, here is a Savior who does everything I need. He tells me about God. He reconciles me to God. He gives me a new nature. I am born again, regeneration, new man, new mind, new outlook, new understanding. He puts his spirit in me. He helps me, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, able to bear with us, able to sympathize with us, an ever-present Savior. The devil, he's already defeated him. He has said, get thee behind me, Satan. He enables me to resist the devil, and he'll flee from me. He enables me to fight that, la that enemy. But there is my last enemy. The last enemy is death. Death and the grave. No man has ever been able to meet him and to conquer him. But here is one who has already done so. Thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory. And in him I can look at death and the grave and I can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory. He's done it all. He's done everything. There is nothing left. My every enemy is defeated. And he is seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. And in the appointed time, he will come back again into the world and finally rout and destroy his every enemy and set up his eternal kingdom of glory and of righteousness, king of righteousness and prince of peace. That is why we say that he is the only savior. Who else can do this? No one. All have failed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he's not only done it, he's done it all. There is nothing left undone. He was able to say, it is finished. And it was finished. Very well, my friends, your business and mine is to assert these truths to the whole world. Any man who denies them is lost, whatever he calls himself. As the chairman said, he is not a, a Christian. We must denounce this error. We must proclaim this positive truth. It is the only message of salvation. Look at it finally, as Peter puts it to these members of this great court, this Sanhedrin. This is the stone, he says, that was set at naught of you builders. And isn't it about time we challenge these modern builders of ours? 
Let's challenge them in the church and outside the church. Look at your modern builders inside the church. They say they're building a great world church. Where is it? What's it doing? What's its message? Can you discover? I can't. It's a mess of contradictions. What is it contributing? What is it going to do? Where is its power? Has it any message of salvation? Is it saving men? Is it doing anything? Where are these builders with all their knowledge and their power and their authority? What are they really producing? Thoughts is of no value. The test of a builder is, does he put up a building? Is it standing? Does it give me shelter? Does it give me all I need? What are they doing? It's all talk. There's nothing in it. And I challenge the builders in the world in exactly the same way. The man who for the last hundred years, the type of men who for the last hundred years has been ridiculing this ancient evangelical message and saying that with his social gospel and with education and culture and knowledge and information, they were going to banish sin. There'd be no troubles any longer. By acts of parliament, they were going to put the world right. You remember the argument? They used to say, why is there so much crime? And the answer they gave was, they said, because there is so much poverty. These poor people, they're so poor, they don't know what to do with themselves, and they're ill-educated, and they don't know any better, and they don't know what to do with themselves. Very well, look at the modern crime wave. Go and ask these builders, what's the cause of the modern crime wave? You know their answer? Affluence. People have got too much money, they say. And they know too much. You see, this is all talk, my friends. Your education, your culture, your libraries, your newspapers, your television, and the wonderful clever arguments of the modern philosophers, what are they giving you? What have they got to say? Read their biographies as they're bringing them out, their autobiographies. Listen to their confessions on the wireless. They can't live. They pass through the divorce course. They advocate license, looseness. They've no hope in life. They're less in death. They've nothing to give. Builders. Isn't it about time we face them and challenge them and ask them, where is your building? It's non-existence. It's all idle talk and chatter. So much for the builders. But this is the tragedy of the builders. These people who claim they know so much and understand so much, they can't recognize the only adequate cornerstone when it's set before them. That's what Peter's saying. You builders, you claim you know, you understand. Well, he says, you ought to know as builders when you see the adequate stone for the head of the corner. God has put it there in front of you, and you can't see it. Here is God's own son standing before them, and they say, who is this fellow? How hath this fellow learning, never having learned? Who is this? Away with him, crucify him. Oh, the blindness of the builders. With a world going to hell, I say, they are rejecting the only saviour and the only salvation and trying to put in his place and his message their own feeble, useless substitutes. But we must go beyond that and issue this solemn warning to them that all their efforts will not only come to nothing, but they are under the judgment of God. This is the stone that was set at naught of you builders, which, nevertheless, has been made the head of the corner. 
These clever people in the first century thought that when they crucified Jesus of Nazareth, they'd got rid of him, that they'd got him out of the way, that they'd finished with him. This nuisance, this agitator, this one who was imperiling the nation, get rid of him, and they thought they had. When they killed him and buried him, they said, that's the end. But it wasn't the end. The stone that they rejected is made by God, the head of the corner, in the glorious resurrection. My dear friend, the rejectors of this gospel, whether they're inside or outside the church, are not fighting just simple men like we are here tonight, mere nobodies in this modern world. They are fighting the living God. They are fighting the Lord of glory, and they are under his judgment. And as so many times in the past, when God has arisen in his might in revival, they've been swept aside. They will be swept aside again. And especially when this glorious Son of God appears again to reign and to rule over the whole universe, the entire cosmos. Pride of men and earthly glory, sword and crown, betray his trust. What with care and toil he buildeth, tower and temple, fall to dust. But God's power, hour by hour, is my temple and my tower, soldiers of Christ, I beseech you, soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on, strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son. He is with us. He will triumph his cause can never fail. Let's lift up our hearts and go forth to fight the battle of the Lord. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org. Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, a comment, or a podcast topic, contact us today at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. 